Welcome to Bruin One Ear and Out the Other. I'm Pranav, and with Nakin, our guest on the podcast is Dan Goble, Senior Scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab. We talked to Dan about his time at UCLA, and Dan provided a primer about deep space, plasma physics, and JPL. We also had the opportunity to cover Dan's interests in Krav Maga, as well as restoring old cars. So without further ado, here is our interview with Dan. Hi, Dan. Thank you for joining us on Bruin One Ear and Out the Other. Great. Glad to be here. Thanks. So because this is a UCLA-themed podcast, one of the things we wanted to do was ask one of the questions that current applicants have to answer as part of the application. We think it'll serve as a great introduction for our listeners. And so the prompt we've chosen for you is, every person has a creative side and it can be expressed in many ways, problem solving, original and innovative thinking, and artistically, to name a few. Describe how you express your creative side. That's a really good question. Actually, I think I'm a problem solver, but it really comes down to, I. I uh have always enjoyed solving problems when I was in school, um, you know, going into the labs and making experiments work and, and figuring out how things work and making them do things that I wanted them to do was always really fun and interesting. So I think from a creativity point of view, if I see a problem in front of me, I figure out ways to solve it or fix it or, or do something with it. Um, I've got like 54 patents right now and people always say, oh, you must come up with patents in your sleep all night or you know, how do you come up with all these creative, wonderful ideas? And the answer is, honestly, is every single one of them was, was the response to a problem. There was an issue that was going on with some experiment I was doing or some hardware I was working on. And in this case, there were quite a few of them were patentable. And so uh, that's, that's mostly the creative side is to do it that way. Um, so you start at Cal Poly. Uh, you transferred to UCLA uh, your junior year. You mentioned your football dreams and aspirations. Can you tell us a little bit about that and when you knew you weren't going into the NFL? So, you know, coming out of high school, I was a, uh, you know, all-league uh, football player. Um, I, I looked at a lot of universities. I was going to go play football at Yale or maybe Cal or one of those places. San Luis Obispo is a beautiful campus. And so uh, and, and they were interested in having me come up there. So I went up with the idea to you know continue playing football, I was a physics major, so that's that's a bit of a conflict. <laughs> and uh, I started playing football. And actually, what happened? This is actually a strange story. Is is that I went up there I was, as an outside linebacker. I was a lot bigger at that point, and their their idea was to add ten or twenty pounds to me and turn me into an NFL size uh, outside linebacker. But just before I went up there, kind of in the summer. I came down with tonsillitis, and in, with tonsillitis, I lost a lot of weight. I, I actually, instead of putting on 15 pounds, I lost 15 pounds. So when I showed up, I was, you know, I'm 6'2", I was about 180 pounds, and they're like, you're not a linebacker any longer, you're now a receiver. So what actually happened in football is, is that uh, I had to play as a receiver because I was relatively fast, but I really didn't like running out there and getting hit. I'd rather do the hitting. And so I figured out after a year of doing that 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 really wasn't the future that I wanted. And uh, I really didn't get the opportunity to go back and play defense. So I figured I would go do something else. There's a lot of physics and uh, linebackers. You got like Newton's second law. <laughs> really? Mass times acceleration? Or? 
Yeah, so you want a lot of mass and a lot of acceleration, and uh, I didn't have enough mass to, to do what they wanted me to do. Had a lot of acceleration, but no mass. And so what kind of, so, so you said you were, you were a physics major, and when you transferred to UCLA, you ended up continuing with physics. What made you interested in, in physics initially, and, and kind of what brought you to that path? Well, I really had a desire and a, a, a need to understand things at a kind of a basic level. And before I built stuff, I really liked to understand it. And so, you know, physics actually gives you that because you tend to, to get down to the fundamentals of what's causing what you're looking at and what's the basis of that. And I really enjoyed the physics aspects of that. When I finished my physics undergrad, I actually went to graduate school in uh, uh, engineering, applied science at UCLA. And in that case, it's more, uh, how do you build it? How do you get it to work? What's the, um, the practical applications of understanding? And, and that's been also a complementary part of me is that uh, no matter what I do, I better understand it before I can actually do it or make it work. And so I find that even when I write papers, all my papers, I've got a bunch of equations and a bunch of ex uh, explanations to explain the physics. And then I talk about you know, how great this darn thing works. And I think that's turned out to be a good balance for me and made me very successful to kind of combine both a deep understanding and then some practical problem solving aspects that make things work. Um, that's probably my greatest achievement is, is that I can go in the lab and I can make just about anything work, almost. And so uh, that, that really helps a lot as far as your career. So then for the average job room, let's just say, um, since you've been kind of great at kind of writing papers, on explaining how things work and, and finding that balance of not only being technical but explaining um, what should the average Joe know about maybe uh, physics and, and at UCLA you ended up studying applied plasma physics. Um, applied plasma, so physics, plasma physics is actually the study of ionized gases and so you take neutral gases you knock an electron off and the, the particles are all charged and they interact differently they interact due to electrostatic and electromagnetic forces and uh, so we model them as fluids, but the fluid interactions are Coulomb interactions, uh, electric field interactions, those types of things. And uh, that turns out to be actually very complicated and very interesting because you can, for example, uh, have now uh, atoms and particles that, that you can make have different energies by accelerating them. Uh, if you shoot them out into space, they allow you to then push around your spacecraft. Those are electric thrusters. Those are using plasmas in order to produce that thrust. Um, on the Earth, we use those ionized gases to modify materials. So we do a lot of plasma surface interactions. And one of my patents, for example, is how to uh, use a, a plasma discharge with some kind of exotic materials to lay down uh, coatings of different index of refraction on sunglasses. And so if you uh, own a pair of sunglasses, it was probably made in a machine that I invented some years ago. But um, so that's another application of uh, ionized gases, plasmas. And, and so there's lots of applications. There's lots of things you can do with it. And it's, uh, it's challenging because it's very, very complicated. All the interactions are, are uh, multi-dimensional inter interactions. So after your undergrad in physics and your master's in electrical engineering, you did your PhD in applied plasma physics and wanted to get your thoughts on um, your time at UCLA, the, the program itself, and, and kind of what you were thinking as a possible potential career while you're, you're working through your, your thesis and doing some of that research. 
So I was one of those students who was thinking, I'm going to get a bachelor's degree and I'm going to go out into industry and work for a little while and figure out what I want to do with my life. And it turns out, because I'm pretty good in the laboratory, when I was a senior, I was working as a lab technician in a plasma physics lab, it turned out. And I did a couple experiments that turned out to work really well. And uh, I wrote a paper on that. And uh, it turns out that in the, at the time at UCLA, they were required to have master's thesis. And if you uh, are the first author on a journal publication, that counted as a master's thesis. So basically, I, I, as a senior, I'd already finished a master's thesis. And so the, uh, the person that I was working for said, well, why don't you stay on and do your master's? You've already done the, the thesis part of it. Just take a few courses and you'll be done. I thought that sounded great. So I knocked out a master's in a year. And at the end of the master's, the, uh, the same professor said, you know, you're halfway to your PhD. Why don't you just stay on and finish your PhD? And so that sounded not so bad. And I was enjoying the research. You know, people say, do you need to get a PhD? And the answer is, is that uh, only if you really want it, but it really is a great tool to have because it gives you a lot of advantages. But for me, it turned out it was just I was in the mode, I was there, and it was very, very fast. So I think I still might have set one of the records at UCLA for an experimental uh, PhD was that I did a master's and PhD in uh, just under four years. But the reason was is I kind of got a jump start as a senior. And uh, so that, that was kind of what led me towards this. I was working in plasma physics, I was being very successful in these experiments, and the academics kind of knocked out very quickly and I was able to get through it very fast. And so I kind of came out of school, school and graduate school with a degree, with a PhD in a field that was very interesting in a very short period of time. And that was really fun and great. So then with the PhD in three and a half years, your master's at UCLA and, and kind of finishing the back end of your bachelor's at UCLA, uh, it'd be interesting to learn maybe how did your perception of UCLA change uh, throughout those three different degrees at UCLA and, and probably varied interactions uh, with the campus? So, you know, as a student, I mean, I, I was a re reasonably good student. And uh, what I found was is that uh, I, I really liked working in the lab. I had a job in a couple of different labs uh, in, uh, in uh, plasma physics labs. And uh, I liked doing the research. And so I always found that uh, if I didn't like the class that much, I tended to not go. And I would then uh, uh, go into the lab and, and uh, work in the lab. And so that would then be a conflict because those were harder classes to get through. So I think for me, you know, my impression going through graduate school was is I was always too busy to actually go to class, but then I'd have to go to class and, and, and uh, you know, get A's in order to keep going. And so it was always a push-pull conflict to, to get out. I, I want to do this stuff, but I got to go to class. I've got to do these exams. I've got to be successful. Oh, but I want to go in the lab and run this new experiment. And so by the end of, of the four years of doing that, I was kind of exhausted and, and glad to be done with that type of a phase that I didn't have to do classes anymore. Um, some people love classes, but they'd rather go to classes than work in the lab, but I'm one of the other lab rats who has, has more fun getting him, my hands dirty and, and, uh, and breaking things and fixing things. Sure. So as you were wrapping, kind of wrapping up that time in the lab and finishing your, your dissertation for your PhD, what did you what were your thoughts on your next career step and, and where you were going to go? That's actually a really good point is, is that, you know, when you get a PhD, people say that uh, UCLA trains uh, uh, students to become professors. And it's kind of true. It's a very academic environment, especially in the technical fields. They really you know, push you towards academic achievement. And so there was a lot of pressure for everyone to go out and get a professorship somewhere. And, and I didn't really want to do that. And I actually thought, you know, if you're a professor, you've got to be on committees, you've got to teach, you've got a lot of students, you've got to do proposals. 
there's all this overhead in order to go and actually do research. And I didn't want to spend all that time. And I thought, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to get a research job either at a university or an industry and, and spend all of my time doing research in the lab. And, uh, and so that was actually the, the statement is I'm not going to become a faculty member. I'm going to go do research. Uh, the fortunate thing is that after I got my degree, I actually got an offer to stay at UCLA and do a research project that was on a machine in Germany. And uh, I was based at UCLA, but I was commuting back and forth to Germany and I was able to go there and live for a couple of years. And that was really fun and a lot of fun. So I got the, the good part of academics of being associated with the university and with the school and research labs and students. And I also got to travel to Europe all the time. And I got to do a bunch of fun research without having to be on a lot of committees and teaching. So that was all really great. Um, I should mention at the end of that is saying that that whole idea of, of not, not becoming a professor to avoid overhead is completely wrong. Uh, in reality, what happens is, is no matter where you go, if you want to do research or you want to do uh, you know, experimental developments or even theoretical developments, you still got to write proposals, you still have to write reports, you still have to write papers, you still have to convince people that what you're doing is interesting and, and uh, worthwhile. And so I think the overhead is about the same, just no matter what. If you're in universities or anywhere else doing research, you spend about half your time justifying it or, or writing papers about it or publishing it or whatever. It's about the same thing. And it doesn't really matter whether you're in a school or whether you're in, in industry. After UCLA, uh, you joined JPL. Um, what is the Jet Propulsion Lab at NASA? Uh, what do they do? And, and can you tell us a little bit more about them? Well, I should mention is, is that before I went to NASA, I spent 15 years in industry because after leaving UCLA, I went to Hughes Research Labs and Hughes Aircraft, which became Boeing Space down in El Segundo and Torrance. And so I spent a lot of time uh, at that point saying, I'm going to build things that are useful. and I'm going to make devices that people actually really uh, are going to use. I worked on communication systems for spacecraft, propulsion for spacecraft, I worked on high power microwave weapons for Department of Defense uh, work. Uh, so there were lots of practical applications. And uh, after 15, 16 years, uh, Jet Propulsion Lab actually came to me and said, would you like to come and work on uh, spacecraft propulsion, electric propulsion for NASA missions? And uh, that sounded like a lot of fun. And, and the actual funny thing is that I grew up about three, mi three miles away from JPL. And so uh, everyone was telling me, oh, you got a job offer at JPL? That's fantastic, what a great place. And my response always was, doesn't everybody work at JPL? My neighbors did, everyone did, you know, what's the big deal? And then, I, of course, I got there and found out that JPL is really a fantastic place. So NASA, you know, NASA JPL is a world-renowned place for doing scientific missions in deep space. And uh, um, it, it deserves that reputation because my experience there is, is that uh, they have a lot of interesting problems and interesting missions and interesting things they want to do, a lot of space science, a lot of practical science on how to make spacecraft, and uh, I get to go and play in that, that playground, it turns out. So I've really enjoyed that. So how big would you say is JPL? And I think their, their headquarters are in uh, Pasadena area, close to Caltech? That's right. Uh, JPL is about 6,000 employees. It's a campus in uh, Pasadena, close to La Cañada. Um, it's actually managed by Caltech, so it's not a uh, we're not civil servants there, we're actually Caltech employees. It's called a federally funded research and development center. And all that really means is that it's a government facility where all the people are actually employed by a local university or company and they manage us and control us. And so I'm not subject to civil servant uh, seniority issues, uh, which is good because that means that you can kind of move around based on 
how good you are and what you do and not how long you've been sitting around. And uh, it's also good in that uh, we get a lot of people that are very dynamic and very uh, push. Uh, they push very hard. They're not push. They do the pushing. And so things happen very rapidly there, I think, compared to a lot of the other NASA centers. So JPL is kind of a fun, active place for that reason. Uh, sure. By the way, JPL was formed from some Caltech graduate students who, you know, blew up part of a building back in the 30s and were thrown off campus. And they went as far away as they could possibly get, which was about 12 miles to an arroyo. And JPL is still in that same location, even though now we're surrounded by some of the most expensive real estate in California. Oh, man, that's a, that's a great story. So was part of the appeal in, in joining, of course, being close to home, but also, you know, serving a, a governmental function, right? Helping to further NASA's missions and, and really help build these engine thrusters that you talked about. Well, just so you know, that was cat number two walking through. Um, I, I've always, you know, enjoyed space growing up um, and, you know, watching the, uh, the achievements and things. But, you know, space by itself was never a big goal for me. It was more, you know, I can't get my hands around that. I'm not going to be an astronaut. So uh, I'm more involved in kind of the technologies associated with space. And so, you know, going to JPL has been, uh, for me, the uh, opportunity to, uh, to play with better hardware, uh, play with missions, uh, you know, hardware for spacecraft, um, you know, do things at a different level that, that satisfy the JPL needs for building and, and designing and, and flying spacecraft. And for me, it's just a lot of technology and a lot of science and physics that is a lot of fun. It sounds weird to say that, that science and physics is fun, but actually when you're going in the lab and you're, you're building things and making things work, new things, different things against very challenging requirements or challenging applications, that's a lot of fun. Yeah. I tell the, the funny story is that my wife is a, a UCLA graduate also, and she was gonna go get a PhD in pharmacology and she had a summer internship and she worked for a summer on immunology and at the end of the summer, her project was actually uh, unsuccessful. Whatever she was tagging didn't work out. And she was just completely upset. She goes, I hate research. I worked for three months. I got nothing out of it. I'm never going to do that again. And she turned around the next day and applied for dental school and became a dentist. And the funny thing is, is I'm like, but that's the fun part. You spent three months doing research and development and found out that, you know, that particular thing didn't work, but you got new ideas. It's a completely different perspective. So I think it depends who you are and what you want to do. So then let's talk about your work at, at JPL and, and kind of some of the things you got to maybe for three months fail at, um, some things you broke, some things you kind of created. Um, I've got a kind of list of things you worked at. You know, I can pick one or, or we can go through kind of what your favorites were. Well, why don't you go ahead and pick one and then I'll probably turn it into my favorites later on. Okay. So to, to an amateur, this one looks the most interesting. Uh, electric thruster life model validation for deep space missions. Aha. So um, everyone knows chemical rockets because you see these uh, launch vehicles blasting off from the earth and they have a lot of thrust. It's a lot of energy that goes out in order to escape gravity and move into space. But once you're in space, there's no more, there's no longer any gravity or it's extremely low. There is no drag. And so you can push your spacecraft around using electric thrusters, which are basically you, ionize this gas and then you accelerate those particles with electric fields or electromagnetic fields and um, how much thrust you get is very small. The amount of thrust you get is uh, on the order of ounces but there's no drag in space and so you're able to then push um, 
spacecraft around because you just keep pushing on it very softly. And if you just do it long enough, they get going really fast. Now, the problem is, is that uh, on a chemical thruster, it fires for minutes or seconds or minutes or, you know, tens of minutes, but not very long. And you get all this impulse and it takes you where you want to, send you where you want to go, lifts you off the earth. But in electric propulsion, the thrust is very low because it's limited by the amount of electrical power you have. And so you have to thrust for years, literally years. And that means is that your thruster has to life for you. It has to have a life of years. It has to live that long. And that's really challenging because these things, you know, there's very energetic particles in them. You're accelerating all these ions to all these very high energies. They tend to hit surfaces and break them apart and sputter them. And so life validation and life modeling is a key aspect of making sure that your thruster is going to last long enough to do your mission. And we do that in two ways. One is we have detailed plasma physics models where we predict these erosion rates and these life uh, effects. And the other thing is what I do is uh, I go in the lab and actually uh, measure the plasma physics of the device, the densities and temperatures and potentials, and then compare that to what the model is predicting and make sure that the model is correct. And if the models predict, uh, correct for the three or six or nine months that we're actually able to run experiments on the ground, then we believe that the model will project the ability to run this thruster for years. So model validation is a big experimental process. It's actually very interesting. I uh, usually do it with graduate students and it turns into PhD theses. It's really a, a, a good program because you, you get to spend your time figuring out, is this thing really going to work this long and, and how well is it going to work? Maybe if we look at 2003, was this something that kind of went wrong in, in the model validation or out of curiosity or kind of what happened then? So in 2003, NASA was getting ready to fly its first scientific mission that used electric propulsion. They're called ion thrusters. And uh, at the time, uh, the, the first life test of the ion thrusters, so the ion thrusters have to last for like, for that particular mission called the Dawn mission, they had to last for two or three years. Uh, the first one that they ran lasted for a thousand hours and fell apart. Uh, they did some fixes and then they did another test for a year, a little over 8,000 hours. And uh, it made it to the end, but it had a lot of erosion problems. So in 2003, we were looking at a situation where um, um, we have a thruster. We don't know if it's going to last long enough. We're getting ready to fly this mission. Uh, you know, what do we need to do? So there was a big push up of saying, uh, do we understand what what determines the life of this thruster and can we make this fixes in the near term in order to make it long enough to launch this mission. So Dawn was launched in 2006, 2007, I forgot exactly when, and actually it just completed its mission last year and the thrusters lasted long enough. So I think we were actually able to, in a few years, figure out what the main issues were with those thrusters and get them to last long enough. And that was really the start, I should mention, of the you know, the life validation and the plasma physics part of the thruster work is, is going into really understanding how they work and why they work, and then we can make sure that they work long enough. Mm -hmm. Sure. And so NASA right now is currently, uh, they just opened applications for the next astronaut class. Um, and I was wondering if you could maybe share with our listeners uh, what you know about the program, program and maybe how often that that happens. Nakan, are you looking for a, a letter of recommendation right now? Are you trying to apply? No, I, I don't think space is for me. I'm sure they've got a, enough qualified people to, to make it. So the, the astronaut program is a, a challenging program to get into. You know, there's a lot of people who want to be astronauts. When I was a kid, I wanted to be an astronaut. Um, 
so they have a lot of applicants. Uh, the people that they select are, are superhumans. You know, they have enormous capabilities, um, not just to fly spacecraft, but also to do science missions, to do, uh, uh, you know, biological investigations of what happens to people in space. And so the criteria are really, you know, or the competition, not the criteria, the competition is really uh, huge. They open up astronaut uh, selection processes every few years, three to five years, and they select a relatively small number because they don't fly that many missions, especially with the space shuttle grounded. Now they're starting to gear back up again as we're getting ready to fly more missions, but they only take 10 or 20 or 30 uh, astronauts and then they train them for several years and then allow them to fly. So it's a very, very difficult process. Uh, the, most of them have PhDs or they're test pilots or they've got some special capabilities that they need. Um, I have to say that I've probably written uh, maybe a dozen uh, letters of support for people who wanted to become astronauts. None of them made it. I thought all of them were fantastic and should have gotten it. So uh, I think it's a, it's a tough project. If anyone is interested in doing that, please pursue that dream. But remember, you got to be at the top of your game. Go get a PhD or an MD or, or go fly, you know, uh, fighter pilots or fighter planes, you know, do something outstanding and then maybe you have a shot. So Dan, uh, what do you think the field looks like in the next five to 10 years? You, you have guys like Elon Musk, uh, who's kind of working at Tesla on the electric vehicle side, now entered uh, deep space, uh, space with SpaceX. Um, apparently Elon Musk learned rocket science by reading a lot of books. I'm pretty sure he probably read a couple of yours, which we'll, we'll get into later. Uh, how have private companies like SpaceX affected the field with their um, reusable rockets? And, and what do you think the field looks like? Well, it turns out that, uh, you know, historically, NASA kind of controlled the space field because they control all the launch vehicles. And they wanted to do it the NASA way, which is zero risk, maximum probability of success, which means extremely high cost. And so the barrier for other companies or other countries to enter the field of space and do things in space was extremely high because of that. And Elon Musk has completely broken that whole paradigm. He's come in and said, uh, you know, we can build uh, rockets for a reasonable amount of money. We can uh, fly missions into space for half or a third or a quarter of the price that NASA used to have to charge for it. Uh, we can still do it reliably and well. And, uh, you know, we're going to make it up on volume. We're going to make it up on, you know, excited young people who really want to do this and, and use their expertise to come up with new technologies. So what's actually happened is Elon Musk and Blue Origin and all these companies are, are changing the way that you, you get into space, that you, things you can do in space. And uh, that's changing the entire field. So what you're going to see is more of that. Uh, you know, Elon, SpaceX and Elon Musk are going to fly more missions. You'll see other companies come in and fly missions. You'll see space tourism increase, you'll see, uh, you know, more people going into space. Um, a guy that I work with at JPL actually wrote a science fiction book in his part in his spare time. And it was all based on the idea that there was a, uh, basically a cruise ship in orbit around the earth and people would go up there for their vacation, uh, you know, experience life in zero G. And uh, I think that that is the future is that, you know, with a better and better access for space, it's not so expensive. You'll find more people are going up there. There are more things you can do up there. People are talking about mining asteroids and bringing back materials that we can use on Earth. Um, it's just you know, very interesting. And exploration of Mars and other areas is interesting. And, and Elon Musk has enabled us to think about doing that on a bigger scale than NASA ever could because he's, he's broken how we get there. He's, he's come up with a new way to do that. You're going to see a lot more space stuff as we go forward in 
uh, in the near future. Would you say that NASA and maybe JPL then are a little concerned about losing some prospective talent, right? Because with younger students and, and kind of those at I, my age or our age, millennials maybe, those that are interested in, in science research end up working at a SpaceX or end up going to Blue Origins instead of maybe maybe joining NASA's team? That's a fact and that's already happening and, and NASA is worried about that. And what we see is a lot of bright, young, talented uh, engineers and scientists are going to these uh, you know, other companies, SpaceX, Blue Origin, or even small startup companies who want to do uh, you know, spacecraft for the uh, internet constellations that people are, are talking about putting up. There's a lot of those that are starting up and the, uh, they're providing thrusters or communication systems or small spacecraft components for these constellations. And the uh, young engineers and scientists are, are all excited about that. It's entrepreneurship associated with space. And we see a lot of people going and doing that. It's a, it's a talent train for NASA, that's true, but I think it's fantastic. I think it's, it's gonna benefit it, everyone, because for example, NASA can then go buy those products and use those products in their missions. It will reduce our costs, it'll give us better products, uh, it'll get, allow us to do better things. And it's gonna, again, open up all new avenues for things that are being done in space by having these other companies doing it. So I think it's a great thing, even though it looks like a, a talent drain, I think it's basically an, an expansion of the talent pool and a, of what people can do. And I encourage people in my classes at UCLA, I teach the spacecraft design class, I say, you know, if you're interested in doing, you know, new and wild and novel stuff, go to one of these startup companies and and uh, try to break into you know the space side of that. It's really fun and exciting work, and very, very, very good for the for the entire world. I think. Um, so then, talking about this future generation, this this young population, um, you're now an adjunct professor at UCLA as well. Uh, what inspired you to go back to teach? Um, what are the classes you're teaching? And and you wrote a book, a textbook. So uh, how's that when you come to class and you, you flex like, hey, we're we're reading my textbook. I actually started teaching because I uh, was working at Hughes and I wanted to actually, uh, you know, leave the plant early in the afternoon and uh, go do something else. And uh, teaching was on my way home. So that was how I got started at it. And what I found actually is that I like it a lot. Um, I enjoy interacting with the students. Um, I teach kind of almost the same way that I do research. I, I do it starting at a very fundamental basic level and I bring people up from the, the basics up to, you know, where they need to be. And that actually, you know, resonates with a lot of students. You know, maybe the, uh, the uh, Albert Einsteins in the class don't need that, but most of us do need that. And so it turns out that I'm, I'm pretty successful with a lot of students who really want need to start at the beginning in order to understand how to get to the end. And so I've gotten a lot of very positive feedback from my students. Uh, it's very gratifying to feel like I've helped them go forward. Um, teaching is is fun in that case because it's rewarding. I'm, I'm helping these people be more successful on what they want to do. I mean, if they want to go work at a star startup and do internet, internet constellation hardware, well, they still got to get a degree and you know, I can help them do that. And so uh, it's, it's really a great part of my life, I think. And it's actually kind of funny because remember I said early on when we started this is that I didn't want to be a professor because I didn't want all this overhead of classrooms and class times and committees and students. And that was just stupid because that turns out to be a wonderful thing to do. I, I get to interact with students. I hire a lot of them. Uh, I always have one or two graduate students working with me in the lab. They're fun and exciting and interesting. Uh, they're often smarter than I am. So that's really fun to, to you know, see them blossom and help them with their careers. And so I think it's been really a, a great thing 
Um, I wrote the textbook for a completely different reason. It really wasn't uh, to, to write a book by itself. I, I did that because uh, I wanted to show that if you have good models and you understood the physics of electric thrusters, you could design them. And you didn't have to do it based on you know, 50 years of laboratory experience. And so the book was really to show that plasma physics models are mature enough to, to design electric thrusters. And I wrote it as a textbook so that students would actually learn that and understand that uh, uh, including a little bit of plasma physics in their aerospace degree or their mechanical engineering degree would allow them to actually you know, participate in this kind of exciting field of electric propulsion. Um, and and, and was, it's been very successful in that. I think everybody in my field has it. And so I've, I'm extremely fa famous in a very, very small field. So Nakin and I, uh, this year, Nakin also, for the last two years, have uh, been volunteer UCLA scholarship application readers. And one of the questions that they ask is if you had an autobiography to, to the students applying for the scholarship, uh, what would be on page 166? So last year, Nakin said it was on 208. Uh, so if, if we opened up your textbook, um, and, and let's just say page 40. You know, for us, the reason, the, the definition of deep space is space outside of the moon. And the reason we define things for NASA, for JPL, for deep space, is that we're trying to take spacecraft and send them pretty far out, which is why these electric thrusters have to run for a long period of time. It's where the large, you know, icy giant planets are, and Saturn and, and uh, the gaseous giants, Saturn and Jupiter. And so that's how we define deep space. In the beginning, the first you know, 30 or 40 pages of my book kind of gives an idea of why are we interested in electric propulsion. And the, the reason is, is, I mean, why would you put all this work to uh, accelerate ion charges to push your spacecraft around? And the reason is, is that it's very, very efficient uh, as far as the amount of mass that you have to launch into orbit. Uh, if you do it with chemical rockets, you have to put in on, there's a lot of pr propellant in your gas tank. You've got to send that up. But if you can do it with electric propulsion, you're actually getting a lot of your thrust from the energy that you're putting in from solar, electrical energy from the solar arrays. And so that reduces the amount of mass that you have to have. Thrust is, from is associated with both mass and energy. So if you get more energy into it, you have less mass required. And if there's less mass required, it costs less money to launch it. So the, the beginning of the book is to try to explain that in real details and even down to the physics of here's the advantage of doing electric propulsion to, to reduce the amount of mass you have to launch and still provide the thrust and the impulse you need to go where you need to in the solar system. So one of the things that, that we're curious about and as kind of is trying to help popularize the, the field of um, engineering, aeronautical, space exploration. And one of the things that, that has kind of come up recently is this idea, uh, our president has mentioned potentially having a space force and wanted to get your thoughts on whether you think that's a, that's a good idea and, and what that might look like aside from the uh, upcoming TV show called Space Force, which will have Steve Carell in it. But kind of your thoughts on, on the idea of a space force. Well, you know, space has always been non-military. Uh, it's been something that's available for everybody to use for communications, you know, to get direct TV and satellite radio, to go find out the wonders of the universe. And so my, my first uh, impression is always, let's not militarize space by, you know, populating it with uh, battleships. Um, having said that, you know, the idea of a space force is not like we're going to have a bunch of astronauts lined up in space sitting around, you know, doing drills. The idea, I think, is, is that we're going to try to figure out how to better utilize space, not only for 
defense applications. I know we have to protect our GPS satellites. We have to protect our communication satellites. We have to help use space to monitor what's going on on the Earth to make sure nobody's launching missiles. There's lots of aspects of utilization of space that have national security aspects to it that I think is actually important and probably good. So as long as they're doing that and they're trying to utilize it to improve our condition, our life, our society, give us better communications, give us better GPS, help us get around better, um, make sure we're more secure, I think it's fantastic. Uh, as soon as they start launching, you know, vehicles that can shoot down other spacecraft and uh, try to, you know, uh, take over the moon, then I think it's probably it's gone too far. So just to recap there, you're a supporter of a defensive space force for mostly terrestrial purposes, not an aggressive one that, that attacks other ships. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely true. And uh, before I went to NASA, I worked for Hughes in the, in the defense industry, and, and all the work that I did was defensive weapons, defensive, you know, things to protect against missiles and things to protect against radars. And, and so maybe that's just my particular uh, bent. I, I'm, I'm thinking of that more than the aggressive side. Yeah, it's fun to shoot stuff, but I think from a society point of view, it's better to defend against stuff. And I hope the Space Force turns out like that. Am I mistaken, or do we... We didn't have to shoot down an asteroid, right? Because it its trajectory changed last minute, but that was a uh, a plan B that NASA had, or, or that was in, in play. Well, now, this is a really good point, is that, uh, you know, if the Space Force gets involved in protecting the, uh, the world against the asteroids that, like, killed the dinosaurs, that's a damn good thing. We should be doing that. Uh, uh, there was an asteroid recently that uh, didn't hit us or, or came close. Uh, there's a lots of asteroids out there that come close and, and don't hit us. We didn't do anything. Its course didn't change. It just missed us. But I think what we need to do is the Space Force and, and even NASA or anybody, we should know what asteroids are coming, how big they are, how dangerous they are, and if necessary, figure out ways to uh, deflect them. And, and so you see this now in movies, of, oh my God, the killer asteroid is coming, how do we stop it? And I think uh, NASA ought to have a program to do that. That's a, that's a really good idea, and there are ways to do it. That, and I think uh, asteroid mining, that's something interesting that I've heard of as a, a way to increase natural resources. Um, so let's take it from space back to Earth to terrestrial uh, and talk about cars. Um, what got you interested in, in old cars and motorcycles? And then um, when do we see flying cars? Like, I feel like you're the guy to do it. Like, <laughs> so, so I got interested in cars when I was actually in college and I had a Fiat sports car. Back at the time, it was a convertible Fiat, a great little sports car. And it was the most unreliable car ever built. And so I found that I was pulling the engine every year, fixing the transmission every other year. I was always underneath that thing. And so I actually started out on cars because I had to keep my Fiat running so that I could take my girlfriend out at the time. And uh, what I found going forward is, is that it's really an enjoyable hobby. Um, Right now, I bought my wife a 45-year-old uh, Volkswagen Carmen Ghia. Um, I have to work on it every one or two months in order to keep it running. Uh, it's, it's an easy car to work on. There are no computers in it, so I can do everything. It's got a carburetor. I can rebuild the, the engine, the transmission. I you know, can keep it upgraded. Fun hobby. It's interesting. Uh, it's, uh, it's something to do with your hands. Um, so I really enjoyed cars all the way through. 
motorcycles, well, I, I used to ride motorcycles until my wife told me to stop. Um, but uh, I had a uh, son-in-law who also liked motorcycles a lot, and he wanted to do motorcycle, uh, do a project with a motorcycle. So we got a uh, old Cafe Racer uh, street racing bike and restored it to uh, the street uh, capability. And so we took it apart and rebuilt it, and that was really fun and interesting and, and uh, made me appreciate Suzuki motorcycles and, and, uh, uh, and their engineering. And so I think it's just kind of a fun hobby to be able to go in with your hands, uh, you know, rebuild things or build things and add things and make them different. Um, our last bike was a Ducati, uh, which we only sold last year, but that was an exciting, crazy bike, kind of dangerous. But, uh, you know, it's a fun hobby. You have to be careful not to get yourself killed. So outside of restoring those cars and, and bikes, you also are involved in um, Krav Maga. And so I was curious kind of how you got involved and maybe explain to our listeners what it is. So um, this is almost 10 years ago. My son-in-law at the time uh, was 25 going on 15 years old and told me, I want to learn how to fight. And I found this, uh, course called Krav Maga, Will You Go With Me? And I think for one thing, he wanted to have a partner go with him. And the other thing, he wanted me to pay for it. But uh, I was up for doing, you know, all kinds of things like that. He's taking me surfing. We've gone, uh, we do paintball, you know, we've done cars. So I thought, okay, I'll go fight with him. So Krav Maga is what they teach the Israeli special forces for self-defense. And I'll be honest with you, it's really dirty street fighting, really dirty. Uh, but it's actually a good course for me, because uh, it's, it's a, it does a lot of aerobics. The first 20 minutes is aerobic exercise. Then you do about 20 minutes in a class period of uh, fighting. And then about 20 minutes of defense against knives and guns and uh, chokeholds and those types of things and aggressive attacks. And so there's a lot of aerobics to it. So for me, it's, it was a good way to get exercise with, um, and, and be interesting. I, I used to do treadmills, did a lot of weightlifting did some swimming, bored to death by all of those things. Very poor compared to the football and basketball I used to play. So Krav Maga gives me a lot of aerobic exercise. And then it's, it's very interesting to learn kind of nasty ways to hurt people in a defensive way, of course. Uh, Krav Maga is a defensive program. So it's, it's intended for you to uh, stop somebody from attacking you, counter that sufficiently to neutralize the threat, and then get away. And so... Uh, I feel very confident these days that I can kind of take care of myself in any type of an aggressive situation and, uh, and protect my wife and my kids or whatever's necessary. Uh, and uh, and it, it makes you a little bit arrogant. I have to tell you that uh, years ago, I was at a meeting in Washington, D.C., and uh, we went to a dinner. And afterwards, we were walking back to our hotel from the dinner, and we took a wrong turn, the three or four of us, and got into kind of a poor part of town. And one of the ladies in the group says, we've got to turn back. This is not a part of town we want to be in. And I looked at her and said, don't worry, I've got this. So Krav Maga is kind of fun in that aspect is that you really can kind of have some assurance that, you know, people are not going to actually hurt you or take advantage of you in the, in the near term. And uh, so our, our last couple of questions that we, we love to ask all of our guests, what is your favorite UCLA memory? And who is your favorite Bruin? And uh, we're instituting a new rule here. You cannot say John Wooden. And in your particular case you can't say your wife wow so you know my my favorite memory of ucla honestly it's funny that you said john wooden and you know what it really was is going to ucla basketball games um i went 
every every game for many many years while I was there. I was there 14 years between uh, school and then staying on on the research staff. I went to uh, almost every single basketball game. It was wonderful. It was fun to be all with all the rest of the students. Uh, UCLA was pretty good at the time. Uh, that was just a great experience, a great part of being a uh, part of a great university. Uh, my favorite Bruin. Wow, that's a tough one. Uh, you know, I, I look back and I, I see some of the people I interacted with. My advisor was a great guy. Uh, the postdoc in my lab that I worked with was also a great guy. They were just basically, you know, wonderful people who had these fabulous talents and were doing interesting things. So I, I think really most of my favorites are, are people who, you know, come through the system or work in the system of UCLA, not any one individual. And then Dan Payson. Oh, and by the way, uh, I, I've had season football tickets at UCLA for the past 20 years. So I'm still enjoying that, uh, the athletic side, uh, no matter how good or bad they are. And lately it's been a lot of bad and not very good. And we lament, lament the rough, rough years. So we appreciate your support of the team, even in these trying, very trying times. Yeah, I go with a guy who's a, a complete optimist. Every year we're going to win the national ch uh, championship. So he keeps us going no matter what happens. That's awesome. Dan, thanks so much for joining us for Broom One Year and Out the Other. Before we let you go, feel free to give us a 30-second plug for something else going on in your life. 30-second plug. Wow. Um, four for every cat? Four in a handful? Almost four. Well, I have to say is that, uh, you know, part of being uh, associated with UCLA is the academic side is that I get to work with students. I, I actually have a student now from the University of Pisa in Italy, and uh, she's a PhD student. She might be the best student I've ever had. She's really fantastic. Her name's Julia Bacani. Uh, she's back in Italy right now, uh, uh, and she's, again, sequestered in her house, can't move around. She was going to get married next month. Her entire life is turned upside down because of the coronavirus problems over there. Um, and I think what's been interesting for me is, is that uh, she's compensated and we've compensated by spending a lot of time on uh, Signals, a, an app where we can communicate and over email. We're writing a couple papers together. We talk all the time about her PhD thesis work to make sure she can keep making progress. So again, from a you know interaction with students, I, I find that uh, it's a great part of my life. Uh, UCLA students are, are fantastic. Uh, I was on the phone this morning with one of my former PhD students from UCLA, Tina Jameson. Uh, it's just a great part of my life. And I think that uh, I've been really lucky to be associated with UCLA and also to associate with all these fantastic people. And I, I really have enjoyed that. That's amazing. And it'll be amazing to see kind of all the, the students who come out of, you know, how, how do they say it from the, when there's like a big mentor, like in Silicon Valley, they say like, this is from this person's tree or like it's their pedigree. So it'll be interesting to see kind of all the students rippling out from you and, and seeing all the different impacts they're making in, in different verticals in, in the space industry. Thank you so much for joining us on Bruin One Year and Out the Other. Please make sure to subscribe and leave a five-star review if you enjoyed learning more about awesome Bruins. And hopefully, everything we talked about today didn't go Bruin One Year and Out the Other. <laughs>